You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 149, The King's Men. Today we take a brief pause on the narrative of Tutankhamun's life. To understand his world, we need to meet the people who shaped it. Although Tutankhamun was pharaoh, a living god, his personal influence and power could have been minimal. Today, we meet some powers behind the scenes. This episode comes to you on behalf of Evan, who joined the Patreon as a priest for an entire year. Evan's generosity is staggering. His gift fills the treasury and enables us to build great monuments, or at least pay for rent. Evan, thank you kindly. I hope Ma'at brings balance and prosperity to your household. To everyone listening, welcome and thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the story. For nine years, Egyptians had lived under the majesty of Neb-Keperu-Ra. Ra is the lord of manifestations. Tutankhamun, the living image of Amun. The pharaoh, the living Horus. He had been in power for nearly a decade. Soon, his rule would come to an end. But Tutankhamun did not know that. Nor, we assume, did his advisors. From the beginning of his reign, Tutankhamun was surrounded by powerful and influential people. Courtiers, family members, administrators, and servants all had their role in the royal household. As a result, this reign has produced many records for the people who lived and worked around the king. Some of these people are famous in their own right, others are obscure, but they all had a part to play in shaping the world of Tutankhamun. As always, it is good to go behind the curtains to look past the pharaoh and see the individuals who really governed Egypt. King Tutankhamun gained power at an early age. He was probably nine years old, give or take, when he became the pharaoh. Tutankhamun was not the youngest king in Egyptian history, but he did rule at a sensitive moment. As a result, the king's officials, his advisors and administrators, had a prominent role in his world. What do I mean by that? Well, Tutankhamun is one of those pharaohs where the court, the people around him, are uniquely prominent. High-ranking men and women gained a lot of prestige, wealth, and influence in this period. So the archaeological record gives us plenty of information to tell the stories of these people. In previous episodes, I have briefly introduced some of these individuals, particularly the big names. The king's advisor, Ai, had been around since the days of Akhenaten. He was prominent and influential. Also, the overseer of the treasury, named Maya, turned up in episode 145b. Maya oversaw taxation. 
gathering wealth to pay for monuments and offerings. Finally, a military commander named Horemheb showed up in episode 142. Horemheb led the armies of Egypt, demonstrating the power of Pharaoh in all foreign lands. Put together, these three men, I, Maya, and Horemheb, are the most prominent members of Tutankhamun's government. Between them, they monopolized many aspects of the administration. Their influence seems to be huge. But although I have introduced them briefly, we haven't done a deep dive on these people. So, let's get to know some of Tutankhamun's advisors. First up, the overseer of the treasury, Maya, the man in charge of finance. I have introduced Maya previously. We witnessed him gathering taxes on behalf of the king in episode 145b. Maya has left an extensive record with many details about his work and his career. We will meet him repeatedly in future episodes. Today, let's get a handle on his work for Tutankhamun. Maya got his start back in the days of Akhenaten. He shows up under that king, and he worked for Akhenaten's government. Maya even had a small tomb at the city of Amana, tomb number 14 if you are interested. There's not much to say about that, but it seems like Maya achieved a high rank in the days of Akhenaten. So when young Tutankhamun came to power, Maya simply carried on. Same job, new management. Everything was gravy. But Akhenaten had been a mature, active ruler. By contrast, the new king, Tutankhamun, was a child. So the government situation had changed. And it seems like Maya rode the wave of politics quite successfully. Under Tutankhamun, Maya became a bigwig. Throughout the king's reign, he rose higher and higher in the administration. Eventually, he attained a variety of prominent and prestigious titles. Let's start with the main one. Maya was the Emira Per Hedj. We generally translate this as Overseer of the Treasury but the literal meaning is overseer of the silver house. Basically, the Per Hedge was one of the financial departments in the government. There was also the Per Nebu, the house of gold. Maya was responsible for both. Among his many titles, he recorded the job of Emira Perwi Nebu Hedge, or overseer of the two houses of gold and silver. Basically, it seems that Maya controlled the royal finances. Anything that involved wealth or resources probably came under his authority. Finally, Maya would be responsible for distributing materials to royal projects. Besides the treasury, one of Maya's other titles was overseer of all works of the king. In other words, he was in charge of certain buildings and construction initiatives. For example, we can guess that Maya was involved in the Restoration, that enormous royal initiative to repair and heal the temples of the land. It's possible that Maya was responsible for work at Karnak or Luxor temples. Even if he did not control this process directly, he could have been the one to organize resources. If artisans, stonemasons, or overseers needed new items, Maya could have been the one to make that happen. 
Also, he probably managed the funding for new monuments, the fabulous structures that bear Tutankhamun's name. These probably came under Maya's authority. So, in a sense, Maya controlled aspects of Tutankhamun's physical legacy, his monuments. When we walk through the halls of grand temples, we see the results of Maya's oversight. So, Maya seems like a money man, the sort of person you get into a project when it needs organization and funding. I guess you might imagine him as an accountant for the pharaoh. Now, that may not sound exciting, and I wouldn't blame you for thinking that. But to be fair, accountants were among the most important people in the ancient Egyptian government. People like Maya could read and write and use mathematics in a complicated way. This gave them skills that 99% of the population was lacking. In the 21st century, mathematics and literacy may seem like basic skills, but in the ancient world, they were rare, difficult to attain, and extremely valuable. This made the accountants, like Maya and his employees, vital to the machinery of the government. So, it may not sound like an exciting job, but it was essential. Also, Maya's financial work actually has a long legacy. It is still relevant to this day. What do I mean? Well, beyond his job as overseer of the treasury, or overseer of works, Maya also had jobs that were vital for the king's eternal life and reputation. In fact, this next job was arguably the most enduring of all. The overseer of the treasury, Maya, is partially responsible for Tutankhamun's immortality and fame. You see, among his various titles, one of Maya's jobs was Emira Kaut M. Set Nechech. In other words, overseer of works in the place of eternity. The place of eternity can be a reference to the Valley of the Kings or the royal burial specifically. So, Maya was responsible for the people who dug and decorated the tomb of King Tutankhamun. This means he is directly responsible for the monument we see today. I will describe that project and how it happened in a future episode. But suffice to say, Tutankhamun's royal burial is a product of Maya's work. Additionally, Maya could be responsible for the preservation of this tomb. Later in his career, we have records of Maya inspecting the Valley of the Kings and checking up on royal tombs to make sure they were safe. Again, I will tell that story in the future. But long story short, Maya has a strong connection with the Tomb of the King. And this is relevant for us today. Every tourist that enters the burial chamber of Tutankhamun stands in a place that Maya would have inspected. He is not so distant as we would imagine. Finally, Maya oversaw the production of treasure. As the controller of the gold houses and the silver houses, he had the authority to approve artistic projects. For example, when Tutankhamun commissioned new statues for the gods, episode 145, Maya probably signed off on the resources. When the royal artists were ready to decorate temples with metal or gems, Maya could have approved the use of those goods. And, when the time came to prepare the burial goods for King Tutankhamun, 
Maya certainly inspected and approved those items. So, for the modern tourist, myself included, Maya is incredibly important. In a sense, he was responsible for the treasures in Tutankhamun's burial. When we gaze on those golden coffins, the jewellery, the mummy mask, we see things that Maya would have inspected and touched. The ancient overseer of the treasury is closer to you than you may expect. So Maya's work for Tutankhamun covered many industries that are still relevant today. Without his work, the treasures of Tutankhamun may have appeared quite differently, or they could have disappeared to robbery and destruction. It is entirely possible that Maya, overseer of gold, silver, royal works, and the king's tomb, was a major factor in the preservation of Tutankhamun's burial. We probably owe him a great debt. As the chief of finance, responsible for building projects, distribution of wealth, and the royal tomb, Maya was among the top-ranking officials in Tutankhamun's government. Today, his work survives in monuments, treasures, and the records he left behind. There is a lot more to say about Maya and his career in the Egyptian government. For now, we have covered the essentials of his work under Tutankhamun. So, let's leave him here and move on to chapter 2. After the break, we will meet the other two men who control Tutankhamun's government. I, the courtier, and Horemheb, the general, were uniquely powerful in this reign. In chapter 2, we will meet them properly, and see how they fit together. That is after the break. See you in a moment. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Chapter 2. The court of King Tutankhamun has many prominent individuals, famous names who echo down the centuries. We have already met one of the most important individuals, Maya, the overseer of the treasury. Now, it is time for a second. Maya was prominent, but I was on a whole other level. An elderly courtier, I had been around for decades. And in the reign of Tutankhamun, he became the most visible of the king's advisors. I is a curious figure. He is hard to pin down. But very briefly, we can say a few things about his role. The strange thing about I is how little we know about his job. His titles are relatively few. The first was God's Father, which he used all the time. He also had the rank of fan bearer on the right of the king. But many individuals had that, and it just marked proximity with the ruler. I was also overseer of all the horses or chariots of his majesty. So it seems like he had a military background in some capacity. And I was leader of the festival of the Ennead, 
Again, that relates to priests and temples and worship of the gods, and it's not exactly a unique title. Those are all of Ai's jobs that we know about. Considering how prominent he is, and how significant he became, we really don't know much about his work. So if Ai did not have specific jobs in the sense of government positions, how did he get his power? More importantly, where did he come from? Perhaps we can get a sense of this by looking at his career overall. Firstly, we have met Ai before. He served the pharaoh Akhenaten, and he was already prominent in that reign. Ai lived at Amana, and he built a magnificent tomb in the city. So, in the days of Akhenaten, he was already a prominent and powerful man. We are not sure how he got this position. There are some ideas related to his family. It is possible that Ai was connected to the royal family somehow. He could have been a cousin, or even a father-in-law to the king. One of the popular ideas is that Ai could be the father of Nefertiti, the queen, then pharaoh. Unfortunately, there is no record, no text, no art, no inscription that confirms that relationship. In fact, it is entirely speculative. Scholars mostly assume that Ai could be her father because he becomes so prominent so quickly, and we know nothing about his background. That's not particularly reliable though, so I have not discussed it previously. Long story short, Ai could be the father of Nefertiti, or he could be a relative of the royal household in some capacity. Whatever his background, the courtier Ai achieved great prominence under King Akhenaten. When Tutankhamun came to power, Ai carried on, and his role became even more central. Throughout his career, Ai used an unusual title. He called himself the Yet Necher, or God's Father. This sounds more impressive than it is. The title God's Father technically comes from the temples. It relates to a type of priest who would attend to the god. Ai is just one of several people to have the title God's Father in the reign of Tutankhamun. But he used this title more than any other person, and it's the one he emphasized the most. For Ai, it seems like the title God's Father was especially valuable. Unfortunately, the significance is unclear. The title of God's Father might have identified Ai as a teacher or advisor to the king, the god. Alternatively, it might have implied a family connection. Going back to that idea that Ai was a relative of the royal family, it's possible this God's Father title conveys something along those lines. Again, that is uncertain. Scholars have tackled the career of Ai repeatedly, but this man is tricky. He is hard to define in precise terms. In 2021, the best I can say is that Ai was a prominent courtier, and he was probably the chief advisor for Tutankhamun. When the young king needed guidance in royal policy or religious affairs, it's possible that Ai communicated those lessons. Again, all of that is speculative, based on vague interpretations of his titles. Ai really is a complex individual. Realistically, if Ai had not become so powerful later, we probably would not talk about him. 
The man is clearly significant, and yet there are few records for his work. We do not have a tomb besides the one at Amarna. We do not have many inscriptions or pieces of art. Statues are lacking, and any records of his work are, so far, absent. One artifact from Giza shows I worshipping the king and queen. This is a stone stealer that he may have commissioned during their reign. So apparently I was a loyal follower of the king, and he was an obedient servant to the rulers. But surprisingly, we just don't know much about his job. It is possible that I had a sort of social power rather than government power. Perhaps with his long career, I used connections and influence more than titles. That might explain why he does not have very many jobs. Perhaps he was pulling strings, making alliances, and guiding policies behind the scenes. If that is the case, he wouldn't show up much in the official records, so that could explain why I is so mysterious. In short, I is hard to define specifically. Clearly, he was a powerful man. I will have more to say about him in the future. But for now, we really don't know much. All we can say is that he was probably the most influential courtier, perhaps an advisor to the king, shaping Tutankhamun's opinions. You might imagine I standing behind the throne, whispering in Tutankhamun's ear. Or perhaps he forged connections and held sway over various groups and individuals. At the very least, we can say that I was a member of Tutankhamun's inner circle. Strangely, that is all we can say for now. I, the courtier, may have been a royal advisor. Maya, the overseer of the treasury, was in charge of finances. Now, there is one last person to discuss. And depending on your point of view, he may be the most important of all. Allow me to introduce the godfather of Tutankhamun's government, the big cheese, the head honcho. This man wielded more titles, more administrative power than any other. He was the most visible, the most active, and the most enduring of Tutankhamun's servants. His name was Hor-em-Heb. Hor-em-Heb, or Horus in festival, was a general, a military man, a leader and organizer who managed aspects of royal business. Horemheb gained prominence quickly in the reign of Tutankhamun, and over the ten years of this king's reign, Horemheb became one of the most powerful men in Egypt. I have introduced Horemheb before in episode 142, Wars in the North. Back then, we saw how this man was a leader of Egypt's military forces. He was the, quote, general of generals of the lord of the two lands. So, Horemheb was the supreme commander, if you will. In that role, Horemheb commanded military forces, represented the king on expeditions, and generally proclaimed the power of the pharaoh. He did this job well, and he earned praise and rewards from the king. But there is more to his story. Horemheb seems to be the most visible or prominent of Tutankhamun's officials. The surviving record paints a detailed picture of his work and authority. It sounds like Horemheb was the leader of Tutankhamun's government. And depending how you interpret this, Horemheb might have been responsible for administration, 
bureaucracy, and the authority of the king. It's possible he was Tutankhamun's regent. Like I, Horemheb is a complicated figure. There are many questions about his role and his specific relationship to the king and the other courtiers. That being said, there is a lot of material related to this man. Today, I'd like to focus on an important question. What was Horemheb's job in the royal government? More specifically, what was his political relationship to King Tutankhamun? This is tricky. Some of Horemheb's titles are unique. We have not seen them before. It seems that this man achieved unprecedented forms of authority. For example, one of Horemheb's unique titles is Idenu en Nesut. This translates as Deputy of the King. That is strange because usually the Idenu, or deputy, was somebody who acted on behalf of an official when they were absent. So if a governor or a commander had to be away from their post, the Idenu would act in their name. If Horemheb was the Idenu for the king, that implies that he could act and govern as if he were Tutankhamun, the agent or representative of Pharaoh. This kind of authority is unprecedented. Secondly, Horemheb had a role that conveyed serious political power. The general had the rank of Imira Iaud Nebet Nesut. This translates as overseer of all officers or officials of the king. In other words, Horemheb had control of the government positions, the jobs, and the people. This title might imply that royal officials reported to Horemheb as the head of the government. So, along with his position as deputy of the king, it seems that Horemheb also controlled the administration and bureaucracy. The official claimed to act in Tutankhamun's name. Another of his titles conveys the idea that Horemheb led the government at the request of the pharaoh. Horemheb calls himself the Setep en Nesut, Kenti Tawi er Irech Seher i Debwi. That long title means, quote, one whom the king chose to be the head of the two lands, to conduct the plans or governing of the two riverbanks, end quote. What does that mean? Well, according to Horemheb, the pharaoh himself asked the general to take control of the government, to act in Tutankhamun's name, to administer the lands of the Nile and its riverbanks. In other words, Horemheb claimed to act as Tutankhamun's right-hand man, his official representative, ruling on his behalf. This is weird. Titles like these are rare at best, and some of Horemheb's jobs are unique for him. In some respects, Horemheb comes across like a regent for the king, a person governing on behalf of a ruler who cannot do it themselves. When it comes to royal authority, Horemheb was more visible in some respects than the pharaoh. It is possible that Horemheb, not Tutankhamun, was the person truly ruling Egypt. What gives? The titles of Horemheb suggest that he was involved in every kind of royal business. He was the one making decisions, overseeing bureaucracy, and generally leading the government. He had those unique titles like king's deputy, and one who conducted the governance of the country. It sounds like he was Tutankhamun's representative, the face of the administration. 
And when it came to government and all that bureaucracy, Aurumheb seems to be the leader of the officials. If there were major decisions to make, like war, diplomacy, trade, or building projects, chances are he was involved. As far as we can tell, every part of Egypt's government was under his influence, to some degree. To be clear, Horemheb was not the only powerful man in Tutankhamun's government. But as far as we can tell, he was uniquely powerful. He had influence over many branches of government, and his authority must have been immense. Depending on your point of view, Horemheb may have been the power behind Tutankhamun's throne. If Maya was controlling the finances, and I was advising the king, Horemheb was possibly the one putting policy into action. His political authority may have been greater than any others. He was not the king, but he was damn close. Horemheb, the king's deputy, seems to be the top authority of the government. In some respects, he is the true power of the court. Others, like I and Maya, had their own power in their own spheres. But from the historical records, Horemheb appears more prominent than anyone else. You may be wondering, why would Horemheb specifically have so much power? There were plenty of high-ranking people in the court. What made Horemheb so special? The rise of Horemheb seems to reflect a unique set of circumstances. When King Akhenaten died, the political situation was unusual. The kingdom was destabilized thanks to Akhenaten's policies. So, to bring order, balance, and ma'at to Egypt, the country needed a strong authority. Unfortunately, Tutankhamun was a child when he came to the throne. He had very little personal influence or power. So, to heal the wounds left by Akhenaten and the insults done to the gods, somebody else would need to lead the government and make the necessary decisions. It seems that Horemheb, an experienced administrator and general, took charge of this process. We do not know how he did it exactly, and scholars interpret this process in different ways. For some, the rise of Horemheb may reflect the growing power of generals and the military in Egyptian politics. That is possible, and I will discuss the idea in detail another time. The other interpretation is that Horemheb and other high-ranking people may have increased their power in response to a damaged monarchy. After Akhenaten and his successor, the power of the king, the power of the crown, might have been diminished. The pharaoh was still a god, a symbol of eternal power, but Tutankhamun was a child, and his predecessors had possibly upset the authority of the kingship. In this hypothetical scenario, the wealthy families of Egypt, the elites, might have gained more influence, more control over certain parts of society. As the central authority of the crown was temporarily weaker or tarnished, royal power might have trickled down a bit to other groups. This may sound complicated, but the gist is simple. Tutankhamun's youth and instability in the royal palace might have temporarily weakened the pharaoh's authority. In response, people like Horemheb and I and Maya could have gained greater power. Wealthy families and leaders of various groups might have stepped into the vacuum and gained more influence in society. 
Again, that is a possible interpretation. It does not answer all our questions, but it may have been a factor. Basically, the reign of Tutankhamun is marked by the enormous power of certain royal officials. People like Horemheb, Maya, and I are more prominent than we would expect, and these men held more influence than their job descriptions would imply. Traditionally, a high-ranking general was important, but not the head of the government. Likewise, a person like Maya, the overseer of the treasury, was vital to the royal bureaucracy, but not as prominent as Maya became. These individuals go above and beyond their traditional roles. They have important titles, but their personal power and influence seems to be even greater than usual. Looking at these individuals and other records, we get an unusual picture. The court of King Tutankhamun seems dominated by strong personalities. Men with wealth, privilege, and influence beyond the ordinary. As their power grew, these people created new relationships between the palace, the pharaoh himself, and the wider society. To be clear, this process did not start with Tutankhamun but it certainly accelerated under that king, and these developments would continue for many generations to come. At this point in history, the veil starts to pull back, and we can see behind the scenes clearer than ever. The view is interesting. The role of the pharaoh and his relationship to the wider society was evolving. From an early age, King Tutankhamun was surrounded by powerful, influential groups. The circumstances of his rule, the instability caused by Akhenaten, and the king's youth came together in a strange way. In many respects, the pharaoh of Egypt is overshadowed by his own officials and advisors. Maya, the chief of the treasury, I, the supreme courtier, and Horemheb, the general of generals, had unusual overwhelming influence. Men like these divided power between themselves. If Tutankhamun had any personal authority, it was minor by comparison. As a result, the pharaoh seems like a puppet of his servants. It is a shame for his reputation, but it is what it is. Next time, we reach the penultimate chapter of King Tutankhamun's life. We explore evidence for his pastimes, the activities he enjoyed. Images and objects, like the king's weapons, reveal his hobbies. Also, we take a ride on his chariots, the sports cars of a young pharaoh. That is episode 149, Teenage Hunting Fighting Pharaoh, releasing in one week. Oh, and stick around after the music for a lengthy epilogue in which I introduce some lesser-known but fascinating individuals. Hello folks, welcome to the epilogue. So far, we have focused on the top-tier officials of Tutankhamun's government. 
These are the big names, the ones who wielded the most authority. But it seems a shame to only talk about the powerful and the mighty. We have a lot of information for other people in Tutankhamun's life. Specifically, we know a lot about the people who attended Tutankhamun in daily business and those who managed the royal household. Very briefly, I'd like to take the chance to introduce Tutankhamun's servants and attendants, the people who worked directly for him in the palace. We don't often hear about those individuals, but their stories survive in bits and pieces. So, throughout this episode, I would like to introduce the big names of Tutankhamun's government, and also the smaller names of the pharaoh's household. First up, let's meet one of Tutankhamun's attendants, a man who worked closely with the king. He was Tutankhamun's secretary. As king, Tutankhamun had a personal scribe, an individual who would take down words, record commands, and distribute communications. We know the name of this man, and we know about his job. Tutankhamun's secretary was named Eni. He served the king as, quote, letter writer for the lord of the two lands. Also, he was the chief royal scribe. Eni was probably responsible for taking down the pharaoh's words, his dictations. He was the one who attended Tutankhamun in business, and whenever the pharaoh issued a communication, it was probably Eni that wrote it down. We know a tiny bit about Eni as a person. He might have come from Middle Egypt, near the town of Abydos or Abju. He left a stone stealer possibly in that area, and this stealer showed him worshipping the gods Osiris, Horus, and Isis. In other words, we have a stealer that shows Eni worshipping the great gods of that region. So either he made a pilgrimage to Abydos, or he came from that area. Both are possible. At the very least, it gives a small insight into his personal beliefs, and maybe his origins. The stealer also gives us information about his family. He had a wife named Tipu, and a daughter named Werner. His mother was named Taka, and his father was Aki. That is all we have, but hey, the names of the family endure. By speaking their names aloud, their souls can enjoy a form of immortality. Even if we lack some basic details, we can still remember Eni, Tipu, Werner, Taka, and Aki. I'm sure they would appreciate the memory. Eni was the private secretary for King Tutankhamun. He took notes, copied the pharaoh's speeches, and prepared his formal writing. If we ever find a papyrus that is written by Tutankhamun personally, that would probably be the writing of Eni. Secondly, I would like to introduce Tutankhamun's driver. The king probably spent a lot of time on his chariot. There were six of these in his tomb, and the art shows Tutankhamun riding those vehicles. I will talk about the chariots specifically later. First, I want to introduce the king's chauffeur. The Egyptian chariot was a two-person vehicle. One would handle the reins, steering the horses and controlling the movement. The other person was free to use bows and arrows, javelins, or whatever they wanted to do. So when Tutankhamun rode his chariot, he would have taken a driver. We know the man who did that job. A couple of records preserve the name of the king's personal chauffeur. His name was Per Aa Nechech. That translates roughly as, the great house is eternal. 
You might also translate it as Pharaoh forever. What a name. You can almost imagine this guy's parents as fans of the royal household. They give their child a name that will glorify the pharaoh as a concept, which is kind of excellent. I wonder what would happen if you tried naming your offspring Buckingham Palace forever. If you're willing to try, I will give you a cool $20. Anyway, Peraa Nehech was Tutankhamun's driver. He had the title Kedjen Tepi En Chemef, or First Charioteer of His Majesty. So he was probably the man that handled the reins, guided the horses for Tutankhamun. Presumably, the two rode together on hunting trips, processions, and maybe in war. Peraa Nehe may have been close with Tutankhamun. For one thing, he was the first charioteer, the senior-most driver for the pharaoh. Also, he had the title fan-bearer on the right of the king. That is a common title, but it suggests that Peraa Nehe enjoyed high status, and he had physical proximity with Tutankhamun. That makes sense. If the guy was driving the pharaoh around, they may have chatted, or at least become familiar with each other's company. So, the king's personal driver survives in the record. Which is cool. It helps us fill out the cast for the royal household. Finally, we know about a man who was vital to the pharaoh's palace. A long-serving member of the household who managed business on the king's behalf. Specifically, this man oversaw the resources and affairs of the palace itself. His name was Epi, and he was a veteran of royal life. Epi worked in the household management side of things. Officially, he was the Great Overseer of the House, or Imira Perwer. Scholars usually translate this as High Steward. What does that mean? Well, the high stewards seem to be responsible for the king's household. They oversaw the palace in a physical sense, like the buildings, and an economic sense, the resources, supplies, personnel, and all that. So when Tutankhamun grew up in the royal apartments, he grew up in Epi's domain. When Tutankhamun became the pharaoh, great ruler of all Egypt, his palace and institutions were Epi's concern. Epi had worked in this job for years, decades even. We first hear about him in the reign of Tutankhamun's grandfather, Amunhotep III. Back then, Epi gained the title Imira Perwer M. Mennefer. In other words, he was the high steward for the king's household in Memphis, the royal capital. Epi managed the affairs of Pharaoh's palace in the great northern city. He achieved that rank in the later years of Amunhotep III. Eventually, that old king passed to the west, and when the new ruler, Amunhotep IV, came to power, Epi presented his services to the pharaoh. Amunhotep IV, aka Akhenaten, accepted Epi's loyalty, and the steward carried on in his job. Remarkably, we have a record of this relationship, and Epi's work for Akhenaten. A piece of papyrus preserves a letter that Epi wrote to the king. As part of his job managing royal affairs, Epi sent the following message. Quote, From the high steward of Memphis, Epi, who addresses the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the son of Ra, who lives on Ma'at, Amunhotep IV. 
This is a communication to my lord, to let the king know that the temple of your father, Pitar, is prosperous and flourishing. Also, that the house of Pharaoh is in good order, that the palace complex is in good order, and that the residence of Pharaoh is in good order and security. End quote. I read this letter previously in episode 113. It marks the last time we see the name Amunhotep IV before that king rebranded as Akhenaten. So, EP left a record at a significant moment in history. By lucky preservation, this man's name endures, and his job is visible. It is remarkable. EP served Akhenaten faithfully. He even followed the king when he abandoned the traditional capitals and moved to Amana. EP turns up at Amana, with titles related to the pharaoh's household, and it seems like Akhenaten appreciated his steward. The king permitted Epi to build a tomb, a burial at the city. That was a great honour, so Akhenaten must have valued Epi's contributions, which was helpful. Royal favour allowed Epi to maintain his position, and his wealth, in some truly tumultuous times. Finally, young Tutankhamun appeared on the throne. Presumably, Epi came before the king and presented his loyalty and service. Tutankhamun, or his advisors, gave their approval, and Epi retained his job. For the next few years, he would carry on as the High Steward of Memphis. So by the time of King Tutankhamun, Epi had worked in his job for more than 20 years. He was experienced, knowledgeable, and well-connected. He had survived three generations of kingly politics. When one pharaoh died and another succeeded, Epi successfully navigated the transition. By the days of Tutankhamun, this man was a veteran. Unfortunately, we only have a couple of traces of Epi as a person. A few items survive, recording his titles and his family. Some of these are charming, like that letter I read earlier. Others are personal like a Shabti figurine, one of those servants who would assist you in the afterlife. Also, we have two of Epi's canopic jars, the vessels that contained his organs after mummification. So, there are just a couple of items, but some of those are really personal, about as close as you can get. Funny how things turn out. Epi managed the palace for King Tutankhamun, the pharaoh's houses in various places, were under his authority. Epi would oversee the hundreds, thousands of tasks needed to run a palace. On any given day, you might have found him inspecting the king's apartments, his gardens, or his stables. I imagine Epi like some remains-of-the-day-style butler, checking every little detail and overseeing the people. This does give us a new perspective on the palace, In a sense, the royal household belonged more to Epi than the king. When we imagine Tutankhamun relaxing in his household, or the king and queen strolling in the garden, they were inhabiting a space that Epi controlled. The pharaoh, Horus, was eternal, but individual rulers came and went. By comparison, someone like Epi had endured. He had seen the ups and downs of royal life. And by the time Tutankhamun sat on the throne, Epi probably knew more about the palace than any person alive. So the image of Tutankhamun and Ankes and Amun in their palace is nice, but 
from a certain perspective, it was really AP's palace. The king and queen were guests, temporary residents, in a space he controlled. Today, treasures and art show the couple enjoying their royal life. But when you look at these pictures, you could almost imagine E.P. just outside of frame, overseeing their world. E.P., Pera Nehek, and Ini are just a few of the people who worked for Tutankhamun. Surprisingly, we know the names of many individuals involved in palace life. Artifacts preserve the names of stewards, drivers, scribes, butlers, stable masters, gardeners, and laundry masters. From high to low, we know the names of people working for the king and managing the royal house. Unfortunately, there are far too many to name. But if you are interested, the scholar Nozomu Kawai is currently writing a book about Tutankhamun's people. Hopefully, that will be finished relatively soon. So if you are listening in the future, there may already be a book about this. Once again, the author is Nozomu Kawai. I recommend searching him out. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, consider visiting the website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com. Also, follow the links in the episode description to learn more about the music used in the show. The songs you hear come from a variety of composers who have generously allowed me to use their performances. Follow the links in the episode description to hear more and support these wonderful artists. Finally, if you would like to support the show, consider giving it a review on Apple Podcasts, or consider joining the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. Patrons can enjoy special perks like early releases, an ad-free version of the podcast, and extra material like pictures and references to supplement each episode. Also, patrons at certain tiers can get special shoutouts on the website and in supplementary material, and I will thank some people on every episode. So, if you are enjoying the show, consider visiting patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. To everyone who has already signed up, thank you kindly from the bottom of my heart. This episode was brought to you by Kyla, Evan, Kendra, Jason, TJ, Terry, and Linda. These fine individuals signed up as priests on Patreon, for which I am eternally grateful. Thank you, folks, for your generous support. May your household bustle with life and prosperity. May the gods bless your palace and ensure a long and stable foundation. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I will see you on the next episode. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.